This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. A family saga mixed with Australian history and a lot of action. Peter Watt has written it all in The Colonial Sun. Welcome to Published or Not, Peter. Thank you, Jane. You have the son, Joshua Steele, and he wants to follow in his father's footsteps. They are big shoes to fill. Who was his father, Ian Steele? Ian Steele, the name I was lucky enough to get from a real person, not that he is the character. Now, I work with the Rural Fire Service as a volunteer. I spent 2019, 2020, seven months straight fighting those fires from northern New South Wales to the south coast out west. So Ian Steele is a group officer in our Clarence Valley, and he's a man for 10 years I admired greatly for his leadership. And I've had a lot of leaders in the past, brigadiers when I was in the army and superintendents when I was in the police. But he was a man that stood out. And, I, and Ian's only about five foot four. And I said, Cobber, one day your name's going to appear in literature. It was a good strong name, Steele. And of course, Ian was appropriate for those times. So the name came from a real person. The character came from, you know, in a sense, the inspiration of the Wilbur Smith novels. We've jumped sort of why Ian Steele, but this Ian Steele is in three other books of yours. So we get yes. to know the, 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 the Ian Steele, the character, very well. So three books later, it's now time for his son to shine. It's 1873 and 15-year-old Joshua was still at school in Sydney, but proving to be academically and athletically capable. His father, Ian, now out of the uh, army, has business interests in far northern Queensland, and they went there together. So what's going on in far northern Queensland? We had, in 1875, around that period, the infamous, I use the word infamous, Palmer River Goldfields. It was one of the richest in the world. It attracted people internationally as well as nationally. Now... In, with due respect to poor old Victoria and the Ballarat Goldfields, other than the Eureka Stockade, it was fairly tame. But the Palmer River Goldfields are now rated in history as the most violent goldfields of that era. More people died there than anywhere other goldfields, including the Klondike. And the thing is, it's a little known in our history. We always go about Ballarat or, you know, the Victorian Goldfields. Why not look at the Palmer River Goldfields as a setting? You had everything. Murder. Uh, cannibalism. You had a trek from Cooktown in some of the most roughest country of Australia just to get to the Palmer. People died, drowned in the wet season, starved to death, were shot by bandits, even mass Aboriginal attacks against armed police. It was a frontier. Ian Steele and his son Joshua called there by an old military friend of Ian Steele's, Major Hamish McDonald. And he wants them to go into this business of quartz mining because all the alluvial gold was gone. But if prospectors did find gold, they could get an armed convoy to bring it out, or they could smuggle it out to avoid paying colonial taxes. And Hamish McDonald was smuggling gold out. And a bushranger gang led by Charlie Goodson knew this. Joshua saved his father and the outcome for Charlie Goodson was not pleasant 
so he vowed his revenge. Peter Watt, this poor Charlie Godston, I nearly felt sorry for him because every time he tangled, he seemed to lose a part of his appendages. <laughs> you know, Jan, I, I started to feel sorry for him in the end. I thought maybe he just might die in his sleep, but no, that was not to be. No. Now, Hamish MacDonald was connected to the Chinese who were at the gold fields and also in Cooktown. I never knew about the Tongs. Can you explain those, please, Peter? Yes. Now, in research, and anyone can do this, you'll find references to the Tongs of North Queensland. They were, today we might call them triads. They were actually formed as um, social groups in a sense, you know, or like we might have the Masonic Lodge or things like that. But, of course, I ran into a bit of mischief with smuggling gold out. And one of the ways they smuggled it out was in the dead bodies of their workers. You know, they would put the gold into the cavities of the bodies and send them back to China. And it's been estimated they made the equivalent today of billions, not millions, billions of dollars doing that. And one of the reasons to get the money back to China or the gold back to China, quoting from you, to fund rebels to fight imperial puppets of the despised foreign powers. You get this drift, you know, there's more political aspects in this book. There was one last mishap that Joshua, his father and Hamish encountered on their return to Cooktown. Finding an overturned wagon and Elsie so how did Elsie get connected to the story? Ah, yes. When you write these type of novels, you're not writing literature. You're not writing something that is, you know, 10 pages describing a rose garden, you know, and then um, somebody's angst about life. What you do is you put in mystery, you put in action, you put in uh, characters. And in her case, her claims to being a duchess when she's very young is kind of laughed off. But as you read through the story, no, she was telling the truth. She does actually inherit a castle. And, of course, our character Joshua is infatuated with her. He's learnt German when he was at school, which was a thing in those days. As a result, he can communicate with her. She starts to learn English. And as we said, we won't give away the whole plot, but obviously she will appear in another book after that, which, of course, mm. is one I'm writing at the moment. <laughs> We learn that her connection with Bavaria and the growing German empire will have a big impact on Joshua. But back home in Sydney, he's got to finish his school and we get introduced to his friend Douglas Wade. Yes, well, Douglas, of course, has appeared in the book I'm writing again this year for next year. He's an interesting character. He's involved with the British government, and he's a, a kind of a grey character. You're not quite sure who he is, but he's a friend to our character, Joshua. When that book was finished, The Colonial Sun, there was so much more material. So I said to my publishers, I'll have to write the sequel to that. So it actually becomes one big book, you know, in the vein of James A. Michener or uh, Leon Uris. Well, it, it sure does, because, you know, we jump into part two and that takes us into London. So what's Joshua doing there? Well, he thought because of his family contacts and the fact he was actually born in England and he's always a spy because it's a thing about sons follow their fathers. And, of course, with Joshua, his father has such a reputation as a soldier or an officer, you know, commanding British troops, but he wants to aspire to that. So Sandhurst was just coming into its own in those days. 
Uh, prior to that, it had been like a public school, military public school for young boys, but it started to evolve into a college to train professional officers. But because and I've got the book, I had to get a, a, a reprint of the book from 1903, The History of Sandhurst. It talks about the modern army. and They're talking about 1903. And in that, there was a way out where he didn't actually have to go. He was commissioned. So it's because they were desperately short of officers in Afghanistan. So we find Joshua being sent to Afghanistan. And there's a very famous battle that was fought there, and that was the march from Kabul to Kandahar. Now, those names are so familiar today to so many of our men and women who have served there. And when I wrote that up, I had quite a few uh, people contact me and say, wow, it's great to see those places we were in, in modern times, being written about in the past. And in that case, the British Army defeated the uh, Afghanistani army. Uh, it was a famous victory. Well, and that's noticed, and he gets the promotion. He also finds out his father was never given a VC, although he was nominated a number of times. Now, this brings in another aspect. Why not? Because he was a colonial. He was able to get his Sergeant Major of Victoria Cross, and in one of the books in the colonial series, I describe how Queen Victoria bestows it on him. And that was taken from eyewitness accounts. Everything I write in those books is a memoir of somebody. All I simply do is I transpose my fictional characters into real scenes. And I'm pleased to see that military organisations have recognised me for that. You know, they said, you're the only one who writes real history where you may have fictional characters in it. It's very readable. Joshua is given the opportunity to become a military attaché to an embassy in Berlin. Mm. Yes. So um, along the way, we have a marriage proposal, a rape, a murder, a meeting of a Duchess Elise and her Bavarian fiancé, and we also have fighting, very close fighting with bayonets. Oh, there's, <laughs> there's so much. And... A foiled assassination attempt, a rekindled love life, an unsuccessful military campaign in the Boer War, and you've told us we're going to get another book to round it all out. I think that last sentence about three words, but he thought that was his last war, and I think the last sentence is something like, and he was wrong. <laughs> I was going to say the actual next war he went on to was actually Australians fighting in Africa, and that was in 1885, the mm -hmm. Army of New South Wales, went across to the Sudan after the fall of Khartoum, where General Gordon was killed. Now, as I researched this book for release next year, I thought, my God, there are echoes even into this year of the divisions between the colonies, that <laughs> Queensland and Victoria had their noses out of joint because the British only accepted the Army of New South Wales. And so on the borders, I used to live at Corowa down on the Murray River, so I'm very familiar with Victoria. And I was actually a police officer down at Corowa. And I remember seeing the old toll booths, you know, where customs and excise would be paid when you cross from one colony to another. And I remember hearing the stories from the old times about how their grandfathers used to swim their cattle into Victoria to avoid the tax. You know, and, and I thought to myself today, you know, after the, the, the closure of borders, I thought, wow, this is almost like pre-Federation days. So that book also takes us into the um, what they call the Second Boer War of 1899 to 1902. But at the same time, we became a nation in 1901. So Victoria sent its mounted infantry 
Queensland sent its mounted infantry and so on to fight in South Africa. But while they were there, they suddenly became one army. So federation was not just simply the colonies becoming states, it was a defence becoming one army. Peter, what you certainly do know a lot. <laughs> no wonder it comes <laughs> through in your book. But a reader wants to know the truth behind his father. This is Joshua Steele's father and mother, who really a common blacksmith and his mother, a daughter of an infamous Jewish criminal. You'll have to read the three books prior in the Colonial series. The Colonial Sun is historical fiction from the Palmer River gold fields to the political power play of Europe. Peter Watt writes of the fighting by bushrangers or armies to achieve their goals. Thanks very much, Peter. Thank you, Jane. And now it's David's turn. The battle between good and evil, light and dark, is as old as time. But what we don't often appreciate is that good and bad exists in us all, often in equal measure. C.S. Pacat explores this dichotomy in her latest work, Dark Rise. So, Kat, welcome back to 3CR. Thanks so much for having me. The setting that you begin with seems very identifiable. Will's first glimpse of London came before the sun rose, the forest of masts on the river, jet black silhouettes against a sky barely one shade lighter, joined by hoisting cranes, scaffolding, and every upright funnel and flue. This seems identifiable, but then it's juxtaposed with that fantasy realm that you provide us with, an ancient citadel gleaming with a thousand lights. It was monumental and very old, like the huge pieces of stone around him. Ancient battlements stood high. I'm just wondering how important it is to provide that tangible foundation in order to make the fantastical more believable. Dark Rise is like my agonised love letter to the, all of the English pastoral fantasies that I grew up reading when I was a kid. Narnia, Lord of the Rings, even The Dark is Rising by Susan Cooper that the title is a, an allusion to. And so it was very important for me to set the book in London to cue people that um, this is what at first may feel like a classic or even old-fashioned tale of good and evil. But then um, hopefully after grounding people in the real like that, then I take them into the fantasy world. And once that classic good and evil structure has been set up, then I hope to pull out the rug so that nothing in this world is, is exactly as it seems. Well, you do pull the rug out from underneath us, but we will get there eventually. <laughs> we have a range of characters in this story. And in particular, I want to talk about the three adolescents, Will Kempen, Violet and Cyprian. They're all of similar age and they all seem to be on a quest for their own identity. I mean, Will Kempen seems to not know who he is. So the story of Dark Arise, the, I, I guess the idea behind it is that long ago there was a, a world of magic, but that world was destroyed and then forgotten. 
But then into our world, into London in the 1800s, the heroes and villains of that long forgotten war start to be reborn. So we've got this cast of young characters, Will, Violet, Cyprian, and a handful of others who find themselves embroiled in a, in a newly awakening battle between so-called good and evil. And each of them must sort of figure out their, their place in the battle and also... Um, you know, define themselves against perhaps expectations of who they're supposed to be, who they might have been in the past. The idea really is how do you find your way to your identity against expectation and against past influence? You've got Violet there who's beginning to question her place in her own family. Yeah. In the case of Violet, she's of English and Indian descent, but raised by a, an English family. And she learns a, she's a girl with a sword and a, a secret to her past. So she, she learns a confronting secret about her identity. Also, we have Cyprian, who's one of the stewards from the kingdom. And he has divided loyalties because he, at one point he wants to find his brother, but he must break almost a vow and go against the stewards to do so. So all of these seem to be identifiable adolescent concerns for the three of them. Yeah. And at the same time, they're also engaged in, you might almost think of it as a generational battle as they're fighting these figures from the past or fighting against the idea that the past might return to come and swamp their, their present. Um, so they must find their own identities in order to do that, but that they're also concerned in staving off the, the dangers of a returning, uh, returning war. Well, talking about battles and war, there would seem to be, as we suggested, a battle taking place between good and evil in the backdrop to this quest for identity. And initially, this battle seems clear-cut. Stewards screamed a voice, jolting her out of her reverie, and chaos broke loose, the unfamiliar words spreading like wildfire. Stewards, Violet thought, the old-fashioned moniker ringing in her ears. Tom and Captain Maxwell reacted as if they knew what it meant, but most of Simon's men were just running for weapons or drawing pistols and immediately started to shoot at the attackers, the deck filling with thick smoke and the choking smell of sulphur and saltpetre from the guns. So we've got the stewards on one side and they're actually dressed in white. And then we have Simon's men on the other, uh, and that includes um, Violet's brother, Tom. Uh, and they seem to be black, including the remnants who are almost the dead risen because they're wearing shards of black armor, which give them extra power. But this division isn't as straightforward as first imagined you provide more nuance. So, for example, the stewards here seem to be paying a very high price for their loyalty in this story. I grew up reading Tolkien, and um, one of the things that I think I find maybe old-fashioned or they chafed against even as a young reader was that biological determinism that he has where an elf will always be good and an orc will always be evil. And I was very interested in, but what if an orc could find it in themselves to do a heroic deed? And what if an elf could betray you? So um, a lot of Dark Rise is concerned with um, setting up, I guess, one of these seemingly classic battles where we have the stewards all dressed in white and their enemies in black armor. Um, but then I think those distinctions do slowly start to break down. And in the case of the stewards, this is an order of knight monk type uh, figures whose purpose is to remember the past 
um, because it's when we forget the past that it has its chance to return and to stave it off if it does try and come back. But then the question becomes, what are they willing to do in order to carry out their duty? They're almost like the Knights of Malta, the old-fashioned crusaders. But I'm just wondering, and here we are entering very dangerous territory, because I don't want to give anything away. Are we able to read the stewards on an allegorical level? Is there a present-day equivalent here? Well, the stewards drink from a cup that grants them power. And um, I was very aware when I was choosing the cup specifically as their symbol, the way that a cup rings out as a symbol across multiple different orders or different groups that we might be familiar with. Um, I think it's always interesting when an order or a group demands some kind of test of loyalty or some kind of ritualized um, affirmation of identity because you're subsuming your own identity to a group when you do these things. There's always a price to be paid for that. You also have on the other dark side, Simon's side, this notion of a sigil, which is a word I hadn't actually come across before, and it's their way of identifying with the group. Would you like to explain what a sigil is? It's a a mark or a, uh, what would you call it, an emblem of a group. And uh, in the case of Simon's men, that sigil is branded into uh, his followers. Your property or a possession of someone. That's right. But there's even a greater ambiguity that emerges as this story progresses. For example, there are two acts of kindness in this story. And again, we've got to tread carefully so we don't give anything away. And we end up with two different outcomes. There's the story of Robert and the unicorn. I think I can say that, which is a very powerful story, but it's an act of kindness that goes wrong. And there's another one between Will and James, who is one of Simon's minions. And it's sort of this casting into the wind in many ways of doing an act of kindness and you don't know what the outcome will be. And sometimes it can work against you. The elder steward says at one point in the book, um, kindness is never a mistake. Somewhere in the heart, it's always remembered. But that doesn't necessarily mean that an act of kindness is going to lead to a quid pro quo good outcome in the moment. To step way back on and answer this question in a, a roundabout way, Speaking of the character of the unicorn, um, one of the things that I was interested in doing with Dark Rise is taking on a little bit of that colonial power of the English story that the story we all grew up with. I think there's a lot of Australians or really anyone growing up in a country that used to be pink on the map where we grew up reading these British heroic fantasies and they were so defining in terms of even what the fantasy landscape would be, pastoral, green, pleasant lands, um medieval and that a lot of the tropes of British fantasy you know they map so uneasily to the Australian landscape the thick forests with huge creatures you know we've got our vast wide open lands and all our deadly creatures are really small even the the wall or the castle under siege it's like a Hadrian's wall anxiety of northern Europeans it's nothing to do with our island continent um yet it just feels so um universalized And I I was really interested in 
the idea that we get colonized by these stories and sometimes that colonial aspect overrides our own identities. In the case of the unicorn, something about him becomes broken and even the act of kindness in returning it doesn't really fix what has been done to him. Well, I think in many ways that colonialism extends to our expectation as readers. You set up one character here, Devon, who, whose description is far from flattering. But then once we learn about Devon's experience and background, are we able to justify his actions? We would condemn him based on the description, but hang on a minute, there's more to Devon's character. Does this mean we can justify what he's done? I love the idea that um, that which does not destroy us makes us stranger. I'm really interested in the way that, um, you know, trauma and, and past actions or even the past and history can impact on us and cause us to behave in certain ways. Does that backstory justify what we do or is it simply the cause um, and we're more immediately responsible for our actions? And in the case of Devon, he is a character who should be a traditional kind of shining beacon of the side of, of good, but he has flipped sides. And I think it's interesting to wonder what were his reasons for doing that is. But that exists in all of us. And this is where we learn there is a duality to everybody. And when I grew up, I grew up as a... A queer kid in a at a time when there was not not a lot of stories with LGBTQ heroes or heroines, and um, the impact that that had on me was that I would I would read these heroic stories but not really see myself among the heroes. It made me very very interested in the villains who were often queer coded, but um, but that made me really yearn um, for moments where those villains in whom I saw myself might show that they were more nuanced, that, that everyone has their chance to be a hero. Um, and in the same way, everyone has their temptation to do the wrong thing. Um, I think hero heroism is all the more valuable if you have to struggle to bring it out of yourself um, or if it comes and it doesn't necessarily spring from those people from whom we most expect to find it. Um, and I think it's more relatable in that way as well. When you can see yourself in a character and then see them encounter adversity and call upon something within themselves uh, to behave in a way that might seem extraordinary, an act of heroism or altruism. Um, for me, that's truly inspiring. And that's, th that's the kind of heroism that I love to see in my epic fantasy. Well, if the reader wants to find out more, just how this battle between the so-called good and evil unfolds. If they want to find out what's going to happen to Will, Violet and Cyprian, they need to read Dark Rise by C.S. Pacat, and it's an Alan and Unwin release. So, Kat, thank you very much for talking with me today. David, thank you so much for having me on the program. David and I will be back next week with two more books and two more authors. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.